It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. My goodness, I did not see so much of this coming. <laughs> Secretary Clinton's top surrogates say they're still confident that she has a path to 270, but Florida making everyone a little bit more jittery than they had anticipated. I was... Uh, suburban mom. <laughs> We're talking about so many of them right now. Uh, you know, I, I had a one-year-old and I was watching the election happening. In Virginia, in Colorado, in New Mexico, we've got Donald Trump prevailing, according to NBC News projections, uh, Donald Trump prevailing in North Carolina, Ohio, and Florida. I need to interrupt with another one. Trump wins Iowa. Uh, I didn't think that the Republicans that I knew had the capacity to vote for someone like him. And I found myself like many people of color, just flabbergasted uh, that day after the election. I'm Ryan Grimm. Welcome to Deconstructed. You're listening to the voice of Candace Valenzuela, a mom from suburban Texas. Like a lot of women across America, the events of November 8th, 2016, changed her political world. I, I dropped off my son at uh, his, his daycare, and a lot of the folks there were people of color. Uh, they were not inclined to talk about politics, but you could see it on their faces. And then that day, I, I was taking a little time off of work because my husband had this huge work dinner that night and I was going to get my hair done that morning. And I went to a Dominican hair salon and the manager had to do my hair because nobody wanted to come to work that day. It was, it was like a bomb hit. Today on the show, we're looking backwards at the four years since the last presidential election. This is Julie Oliver, another suburban Texan. We told her our daughter, and she started crying. She thought, you know, Hillary was going to be the first woman president, and she woke up to a very different reality. And this is Annie Weaver from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. I remember stopping at the Wawa, and I couldn't even look anybody in the eye. I just felt like this couldn't be the world that we were living in. The right-wing activist Phyllis Schlafly is often credited with creating a movement of conservative women who were able to stop the Equal Rights Amendment in its tracks and roll back women's liberation. But more accurately, she took a network of women who were already engaged in their communities, largely through their schools or their churches, and she politicized them, radicalized them. Trump has done the same in reverse. Women haven't just moved away from him and begun voting Democratic. They've thrown themselves into politics with everything they have, and they've transformed both parties as a result. Let's get back to Candace, who was born and raised in El Paso, where she experienced homelessness before making it through college and on to suburban Dallas. Which brings us back to that Dominican hair salon where the manager had to explain to her that she'd be the one doing her hair that day. And she said, I didn't have the heart to yell at them to tell them to come to work because I don't feel like being here, but I, I need to make sure this place runs. So here we are. <laughs> it, was, it was just such a, a surreal feeling. I was committed to doing everything it would take to change the, the structure of the politics around me. I didn't know what that would entail just yet. I didn't think, now I'm going to go and run for office. I said, I'm, there is a big red wall here in Texas, and I'm going to throw myself at it. <laughs> it was the only thing that, that came to mind. And so I just started hanging around organizers and learning how to organize. And before I knew it, I was trying to find somebody to run for my local school board. And 
as I was looking at it, I was looking for somebody older. <laughs> I was looking for somebody more established to run for this seat. And as somebody who'd been in education for years, as someone who'd studied government as policy in, in college, I started to realize that, you know, I, I was in love with that job. I was in love with education policy. I was in love with making changes. And I ended up running for my first office. What was the uh, Board of Education race like? Who was the who was the incumbent that you were taking on? So I was taking on an 18-year incumbent. And his wife, I think, was the uh, president of the local uh, Republican Ladies Club. Uh, he'd been active in Republican politics for quite some time. And I think one of the first times I'd ever heard him speak and he was talking about test scores going up in one of the local elementary schools after they bulldo bulldozed the local apartments. <laughs> and I, I took issue with that. Wow. Uh, yes. <laughs> as, as somebody who grew up uh, bouncing around from place to place at, at, at certain points in my life, I was living in those apartments. I was one of those kids mm -hmm. who uh, may not have had the most stable living situation. And mm -hmm. You know, there were there were times where we were at candidate forums, and I think one time they asked us about how parents aren't getting engaged enough uh, with a PTA. I think this was at a PTA forum, and my opponent was talking about parents just not caring anymore. And I I had to talk to him about I had to talk to all of them about the fact that millennial parents, uh, Gen X parents. Um, and now we're, we're, we're in, a, in a generation of Gen Z parents are working a lot harder uh, for a lot fewer real dollars. Mm -hmm. And the option to have one parent at home all of the time making cupcakes is, is out of reach for far more families than ever before. Uh, so it wasn't because they didn't love their kids that they weren't showing up to PTA meetings at odd hours of the day. They loved their kids so much they had to work to support them. What was the, what was the campaign like? At the time, as I mentioned, I had a young son, and there were times uh, I would uh, drop him off at daycare. I would work all day, and then I would pick him up, and I would I would nurse him in the parking lot. I was I was still breastfeeding, and then I would hand him off to my husband, and I'd go to a candidate for him. Uh, there were other days I'd pick him up, I would nurse him in the parking lot, and then I would I would take him to knock on doors with me. I would strap him to my back at a baby ergo, and I would grab a bag of literature, and he would have to to listen to me talk to voters for as long as he could stand it or for as long as I had diapers. Uh, there's one night and it was toward the end of the campaign. He was getting closer to uh, two years old and I was toweling off his little head after a bath and he looked up at me and he said, my name Candace Valenzuela. I run school board. And he was very sure of himself. <laughs> I don't think it really occurred to me that I might win until I think a week into our two-week early voting period, I just woke up one day and said, oh my God, I think this is going to happen. <laughs> um, and I, I, I just kept being invested in the process. And then one night, uh, that election night, I didn't even have a watch party. I, I dropped in on, on watch parties for up-ballot candidates, people running for city council, a uh, couple of folks running for mayor in, in, in certain areas of my district. My, my district has six cities. And I won. Okay, so what was be, what was serving on the on the school board like? And any any um, you know, what's the thing that you take away from that? What I took away from that is is a passion about campaign finance reform. <laughs> and you think why would you think that? Well, because even as I, I have some deep fundamental differences with a lot of the Republicans that were on my board. And there were many because, again, this, was, this is still suburban Texas. I could have conversations with them about policy from a reasonable perspective because they weren't being influenced by tons and tons of outside money. Uh, they were being influenced by their convictions. And when their convictions came together with mine about providing for the kids or providing for the folks working in the schools or providing for the teachers, we were able to get things done. A lot of folks love to talk about the polarization from DC as if it were something that, that came out of the ether and it's just bad people not behaving properly, uh, but they can't see 
the the tens of hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars um, affecting the process, affecting people's behavior. And when I think about many of the Republicans, and again, I don't necessarily agree with them on anything, but if I would want to see somebody advancing within their party and, and ascending to a higher office, those folks I was working with wouldn't, <laughs> simply because they had the convictions of their community in mind uh, and not uh, big moneyed interests. So we're seeing this, I, I, I love political discourse. I love uh, having a, a country of, of varying viewpoints, but I, I feel as though discourse is completely suffocated in an atmosphere that's completely dominated by money. And so in, in 2018, did, were you active in the, in the, the midterms? either in the, the state legislative level, working for candidates there or at the national level, trying to, trying to flip the House Democratic. Beto, Beto O'Rourke actually was the, was the phenom in, he in was. the Lone Star State that year. And he, he did a lot uh, to build out Democratic infrastructure in the area. And I, I did uh, have the chance to, to talk to his campaign. I did uh, do a roundtable discussion with them on, on education and ending the school to prison pipeline, because that was something that I was actively doing in my work on the school board. But I was very focused locally. I, I was focused on making sure that our kids had equitable mm -hmm. access to uh, full day pre-K and access to better facilities, which meant that I needed better state reps. And so I worked really hard for Julie Johnson uh, who's in the southern part of my school district to get her in, and she helped uh, to recoup $37 million of our taxpayer money uh, so that we can better provide for all the kids in our district. I was very focused on getting a new bond passed. It was in it was hundreds of millions of dollars, mm -hmm. again, so that the, the incredibly uh, poor elementary school up the street from my house, one where there are a lot of, a lot of apartment kids, brown kids like me, uh, you know, the school hadn't seen updates in a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. And so I was working really hard to make sure that that money was going there. And I was successful. I, I helped, uh, you know, me and my board really pushed for that bond to pass. And that's where I was, I was laser focused, even as I was trying to help uh, in partisan races. Mid-2018 was also when that, uh, when the child separation uh, scandal erupted. Which, which Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez helped launch, you know, as a national scandal by calling them concentration camps down on the border. Um, what, what was your reaction when you, when you first learned what was going on down at, down at the border? What was the reaction in, in the community? I can actually just tell you the moment. I, I was in my first trimester of pregnancy. And, oh, this is, uh, this is embarrassing, but I'm going to share this with you anyway. I was in my first trimester of pregnancy. And... I was at a Game of Thrones convention. <laughs> and no shame, no shame. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I I happened to glance at my phone for some reason and I saw the pictures of this bus filled with car seats and the news that they were they were taking away small children en masse from their, their parents. They were just pulling them away from them. And I, I had to go find a place to be alone. And I, I just cried. I was just beside myself. And I was very upset. You know, I'm, I'm, I am an attachment parent. You know, I, I nursed my, my, my one year or my baby until he was two, my first baby. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I think a lot about that early childhood development and how critical it is. And to, to see so many families who love their children so much that they would carry them for miles and miles uh, and not have their, their children anymore. And I didn't even know how bad it would become when I, when I thought about the fact that, you know, I was born in El Paso, Texas uh, to a, a Mexican mom and the difference between myself and, and some of those families who were separated was, was luck. I was born 20 minutes north, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, this, mm -hmm. I could have been one of those mothers. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's not, it's something that haunts you. Uh, I think that our members of Congress uh, were doing a great job at, at being insistent on, on going to where they were keeping these children and 
shedding light on the conditions. Um, I'm really proud of how bold they were, but it was also maddening because it, to see how powerless they were as well. Um, right. The de Democrats still didn't have a majority then. Was that around the time that you started thinking maybe I should go to Washington and do something about this? Absolutely not. <laughs> it, it, again, it, you start, you get these big feelings and you, you try to figure out where, how do I best work to solve this problem? And I, I don't, I don't think a lot of women first think that they should solve the problem by being in charge. Uh, it's one of the issues that we have in this country mm -hmm. that needs to be changed, that needs to be fixed. So after the 2018 election, uh, the person who ran for Congress here got very close and I got my bond, <laughs> which is what I was concerned about. Uh, I mm -hmm. went to lunch with some friends of mine, some of whom had staffed um, political campaigns among, the, among them was, was Beth O'Rourke's campaign. They'd been traveling the entire state uh, for the last year and a half. And I'm sitting there with my Korean food and they said, you know, this district, it almost flipped. I said, yes. And they said, you know, Betho won this district. And I said, yeah, that's, that's really cool. Can't wait till it flips next cycle. They said, you know, it would really flip with a strong woman of color. And I said, that's fantastic. Let's find her. <laughs> See, I was eight and a half months pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, you know, we're talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was going to tell my husband about this. I said, listen to this crazy thing these folks told me. And he said, of course you should do this. <laughs> hmm. And I said, sir, you're going to have, at that point we had a, a three-year-old. And I said, you're going to have a three-and-a-half-year-old. You're going to have a newborn baby. You're going to have to do a lot of uh, the heavy lifting with the kids. If I'm going to be going through this process, it was hard with school board. He, he, uh, you know, I, even as I had my, my son with me for a lot of it, it wasn't all of it. There were a lot of late nights. My husband had to, to rock a screaming child to sleep. And he said, this, we'll figure it out. Uh, you would, you'd best represent this district. What finally convinced me was watching the folks who were coming into the district to run. And there were several of them and they were looking to run as generic Democrats. They, they thought that a Democrat can win this seat. And so I'm a Democrat and that's perfect. And mm -hmm. coming from the place I came from, someone who'd experienced childhood homelessness, uh, someone who'd worked in education, uh, someone who knew that these families were the kinds of folks who did everything ostensibly right. They crossed their T's, they dotted their I's, and they're still not uh, seeing a return on their investment in the American dream. I felt like it was a responsibility to work hard to represent them the right way with the urgencies that they're feeling. And, and that's why I ended up launching a congressional campaign with a four-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. One of those opponents was Kim Olson, who we'd covered at The Intercept, uh, um, I guess, around the time that she launched. People listening now might even remember her a little bit from this viral kind of launch video. Kim Olsen here. They say true warriors rarely pick their battles they're chosen for them. When I joined the Air Force, I wanted to fly jets, but they said I couldn't go to flight school because I was a woman. And it's, it's part of a genre now uh, of a kind of a, a female fighter pilot, you know, who, who's, who's going to be a, you know, a, a tough boss and, and is going is to bring that military spirit to and crack some heads in, in Washington. We didn't choose this battle. It chose us. And if you believe it's a battle worth fighting, be a warrior. Join us. But, you know, as you listen, you, you see that there actually isn't, like you said, there, there's actually no nothing behind it. It's just, it's just I'm going to be a good representative for this district because of my background. Um, but not telling you why, like what, you're, what, you, what you stand for. A lot of people in Washington looked at that race at that time when, her, you know, her, her, her ad went viral, tons of money came flooding into her, uh, her coffers, and she, everybody in Washington said, well, that, that race is over. That's, that's going to be the Democratic nominee. We've seen this movie before. We know how it ends. That's who they're going to go into the general election with. Were, what was your reaction to, to seeing her, her launch? And did you think, I'm, I'm done for? 
I, there's no way I can compete with this? Or do you think, no, once, once this campaign gets started, people are going to pay real attention? I think it was somewhere in the middle of those two things. I, you know, it would have, uh-huh. <laughs> it would have been ridiculous if I, I weren't a little bit intimidated by the fact that uh, she came off of a statewide race in which she campaigned with Beto O'Rourke across the state. A lot of folks knew who she was. Right. She had run for agriculture. Is that right? She won unsuccess. She ran unsuccessfully for agricultural com- commissioner during during the 2018 right. cycle. And she actually didn't win the district uh, running for ag commissioner either. So I thought it was an interesting choice to jump into this district uh, that was, I think, 70 miles away from where she lived. It was hard fighting. I felt like I was fighting upstream against stereotypes, uh, particularly from out of, uh, out of district and out of state donors. So they look at this lady who is this, you know, uh, Air Force lady who looks like she's going to go to Washington, D.C. and kick ass. And they're like, okay, white Air Force lady. That fits rural Texas. And I'm mm-hmm. not in rural Texas. I am in right. the suburbs. I, I tell folks there are more PhDs in my district than there are cows. And they couldn't grok that. Or the fact that, they, that this is a majority <laughs> person of color district. Uh, one in four people here are Latino. Um, they still could not, even being presented with the facts, they could not get around that. They said, no, this is Texas. This is what Texas looks like. Right. And <laughs> as as the campaign progressed, as folks got to know both of us, particularly I ha- since I had a, a history of, of serving folks in the district, uh, it, it, it slowly began to emerge that I'd better represent it. I'm humbled. By the election results, former Carrollton Farmers Branch ISD trustee Candace Valenzuela defeated retired Air Force pilot Kim Olson in the Democratic primary runoff. Valenzuela now takes on Republican and former Irving Mayor Beth Van Dyne for the open seat. I mean, one of the things was that I was I was running in a race with other members of my community against this person who came in from the outside with outside money. Uh, so there was this person with all this money and then some of the folks that might have been in, in coalitions with me later. I think a lot of it was just folks getting to know both of us, folks getting to hear our thoughts on, on, on our policies. And as, as we were seeing the difficulties with COVID-19, uh, as we were dealing with or as we were reckoning with race in this country in a fresh way in the wake of, of George Floyd's murder, uh, we were able to better flesh out who we were in this campaign and what we were intending to do for the communities. I think it, it, it paved the way for, for me to win there. Well, Candace Valenswell, thank you uh, so much for joining us on, on Deconstructed. Absolute pleasure, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Um, Hi, I'm Andrea Weaver, and I live in New Holland, Pennsylvania, in Amish country. And I'm a teacher. I've been an elementary teacher for 33 years. I first spoke to Annie Weaver back in 2018, and she was a major subject of a long article in The Intercept then and later in my book, We've Got People, from Jesse Jackson to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, The End of Big Money and the Rise of a Movement. 
Weaver hadn't considered herself a political person before the 2016 election, but she'd been active in her church and had even done missionary work in Japan. Like Candace, Annie's life was changed by Trump's election, but things haven't gone as well in Lancaster County as they have in Texas. I just felt like this had to be, this couldn't be the world that we were living in, that that many people couldn't stand for the things that he was saying he stood for. And so it was, it was a really difficult um, time, um, just not really wanting to engage with anyone at all because I just felt so disappointed in, in those around me. I was deeply depressed. Um, it's kind of a depression that I've never experienced before. As I said, um, I was especially just kind of suspicious of everywhere I looked, you know, thinking my colleagues, my community, everyone around me voted for this person. And I just don't understand why. And so it was very, very depressing. And I... And you said your church too, even, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, that was a huge um, part of it for me was the fact that Lancaster County and Pennsylvania had had just fallen all over Trump and and supported him and and a lot of people that I respected I I just couldn't understand what they saw in him and what they and the and the values that I I was seeing in his campaign and that that was something that they that they supported so it was it was really a dark time for me and and it was only until I started seeing posts about the women's march that I just made up my mind immediately. It was probably as soon as I saw it, I, I, that was the thing that I, I thought to myself, I, I need to go to Washington, which I had never done for political reasons. And I, I just knew, and I thought if I have to go myself, I will go myself. I just, I was, I was going to find a way to get to Washington. And that was kind of what held me together. I, I don't know. It just seemed super, super important to make my voice heard that this was not okay. And it was a day that I, I will never forget. <laughs> the Women's March on Washington saw more than one million people in the streets in protest. It has sparked what some could call the start of an enduring opposition. We'll see if that happens when we get further down. The what road. did you see there? What was it like? It was amazing because... I think everyone had um, the idea that it was going to be a very, I don't know, scary day and it, you know, dangerous. I, I, there was just a lot of things that people put out there that they were concerned about. They were saying that everything was going to be shut down. So it was going to be difficult to, to get around. But what I saw that day, just everybody coming out of their homes and supporting us and, and just, and then just how many people there were. I don't, I don't think I really understood how many people there were going to be. Lots of women, obviously, but also a lot of men too. And um, people of all ages, um, races. Uh, it was such an uplifting day. And all the speakers that we heard and just all the experiences that we had with the people that... It was, it was just like you were among friends <laughs> And, and that, was, that was exactly what I needed because I felt so alone here in my community that to go somewhere and see that I wasn't alone was just exactly what I needed. And also super, super inspiring. And in that moment, I just thought, I, I, have, to, I have to do something beyond this day. They kept, they kept saying that, that you know, if, if, if it's just about this day, mm -hmm. then it's not really going to help anything. But but if we can go back to our communities and keep that motivation going, that it would mean something. I needed for it to mean something. More than a million women, the first mass demonstration that reached all seven continents. The Women's March on Washington became the Women's March around the world. But the question now lingering after possibly the largest protest in U.S. history, what's next? So much for me, you know, is, is, is blurred <laughs> in in. A time in the timeline, just because there's been so much that has happened. But I definitely, my next step was to get involved with Lancaster Stands Up, mm -hmm. which had been the group that had organized their mass meeting directly after the the election. And 
I, I started going to, to events um, that they were holding in Lancaster. I think one of the first ones that I went to was for refugees. And that was something that really resonated with me. It was really surprising to me. Um, I post a lot on social media. And even something as simple as supporting refugees, the backlash <laughs> that I saw from people I at that point considered friends and from family members, it was it was once again just that reality that I, I was living in a different world or something than than so many of the people that I was surrounded with because they could find something offensive about something which I thought was such a beautiful thing, um, helping refugees. I, I didn't realize that was going to be such a controversy, you know, in the moment. Right. So once you had hooked into um, the, this group, what did what did 2017 and, and 2018 look, look like for you? Well, I was involved on and off um, with, it was, it was probably about a half a year later. Um, well, the first thing that I ended up doing, actually, after the meeting with um, the Lancaster Stands Up groups and everything was to start my own group. So I put it out there that women could come and actually um, some men came too, but that women could come to my house and it involved, you know, writing postcards and just having a place to vent and talk with each other. So it was just kind of a little group that, that met um, periodically and I kept giving them updates and things about things that they might want to get involved with that I was finding from Lancaster Stands Up. And then in the fall of would have been 2017, that was the first time that I ever canvassed. And that was, again, something that if you had told me before that, that I would ever go knock on people's doors, I would have said that that was never going to happen. <laughs> and then it kind of morphed into helping with the Jess King campaign. Jess King officially announced her candidacy for Pennsylvania's 16th congressional district tonight at Penn Square, making the Democratic race a logjam a year out from the primary. That was kind of the natural next step. Right now, Pennsylvania has no women representing us in Congress. We're working our hearts out and not seeing people get further ahead. It feels increasingly like it's a Band-Aid on a broken system. A big change for me was realizing that those local elections are so important. I think I was one of those people that thought just about the presidential election. And of course, that's what had pushed me into this arena anyway. But it became abundantly clear that our state elections matter <laughs> and our local elections matter. And um, I think that's kind of carried through um, even to, to this year. I was devastated I, I, when she didn't win. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to be perfectly honest because if there was ever a if there was ever a perfect candidate, it was her. After Jess lost, I I think I mean I was once again heartbroken, and I felt like we had worked so hard and run such a great and not and I shouldn't even say we I mean but she ran such a great campaign and the people that I worked with at Lancaster Stands Up had worked so hard and so many people had done so much. How is Pennsylvania looking looking now? And how do you how do you feel about the state when you see the the polls showing Biden with these seven, eight, nine point leads over over Trump? Well, it's it's still very difficult because the polls said that four years ago. And I'm one of those people that just is afraid to and it's not that I don't want to believe them, but I just, I don't, I, I, I get hopeful <laughs> that, um, that it's going to be the case. And I know there's tons of places in Pennsylvania where, where Biden is doing well. It's still very hard to be a Lancastrian, uh, someone who lives here in Lancaster County and see the support that's still there for Trump. Is, is your sense that even as Democrats have made such huge gains in suburbs, around the country that in places like Lancaster, Trump may he even have solidified his positioning, might, might be even stronger than, than four years ago. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, again, I've, I've been having conversations with family and friends for four years, and they see reason to continue to support him. 
they are stronger than ever. Yes, absolutely. Do you know anybody who has gone from not voting or voting libertarian to now supporting Trump? I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. Most of the people that I'm thinking of, you know, were Republicans, um, have been have been lifelong Republicans and have made every allowance for Trump and made every excuse for him for any anything in order to remain, you know, steadfast in their support of him. Yeah, so that that's mostly the the people that I'm thinking of that have have been Republicans. I mean, I I do have family members that are Republicans that didn't vote for Trump and continue to not support him, but I'd say the overwhelming majority of them still support him. Right, right. So have you been mostly part of the, the this small dollar army that has emerged? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. I that that has been one of the ways that I felt like I could continue to help through COVID. Um we also I, I did go to I mean this is a different topic than election, but um, I did go to at least one of the protests in Lancaster for Black Lives Matter. I, I just needed, just just like back at, you know, going to the Women's March, I needed to make myself seen and heard there, but I wasn't as comfortable because of COVID um, being in large groups of people that I, I was one of those mask supporters, you know, social distancing supporters, and it was hard not to feel like, well, if we're going to gather together, you know, I know it's for great causes and for things that we need to stand up for, but just finding that line between wanting to show that I believe in science and, and I'm wanting to keep us all healthy and also, you know, being somebody who stands up for social justice issues. Right. If Democrats do uh, take the White House and the Senate in, in 2021, what, what do you think you'll, uh, what do you think your year will look like activism wise? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm sure that will be super motivating for me to continue to be involved because, again, I I feel like I've seen a lot of losses in the things I've been involved in. Um, You know, I'm I'm overdue for a win here. (laughs) Annie, it was great to talk to you again. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, It was great to be able to talk with you again, Ryan. Thank you so much. I'm Julie Oliver, and I'm the Democratic nominee for the 25th Congressional District here in Texas. For our final guest, we have another suburban Texas mom who also coincidentally experienced homelessness as a child. But on that night in November 2016, she was watching the election returns like everybody else. Hindsight is 2020, so there's no way I could have even envisioned him doing the things that he's already done. I mean, I think I thought the the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, um, was going to get lobbied hard to be repealed. Um, But I don't think I could have ever imagined him writing executive orders that would ban an entire religion from our country. In my mind, I think I kept thinking, well, he'll eventually do the right thing once he's taken the oath of office, which, you know, that didn't happen. So we went to the Women's March. I actually think my husband found it. It was either on Twitter or Facebook, but social media, we found it. We took our youngest daughter to it. And that was probably, I'd never even been involved in a march before nothing. You know, I was busy raising children. I've, I've got four kids and you know, my oldest was born in 1990. My youngest was born in 2010. So I've had little kids, you know, most of my adult life. How big was the Austin Women's March and what, what was it like to be there? Oh my God, it was huge. It was huge. Oh my gosh. It was amazing. It really, truly amazing. 100,000 women, I think, uh, showed up in Austin. And it's not been the same since, you know, we've had a couple since then, but not the numbers aren't, haven't been there, but don't, you know, I, I realized, you know, what happens is when you poke a mama bear, she'll come out and fight. <laughs> and it honestly wasn't until July of 2017 when, you know, Congressman Williams took the vote to repeal the affordable care act that I looked at my husband and I said, you know, this mama bear has now really been poked and I'm going to run for Congress. I actually said something more like, I, I have a terrible idea, honey. I need you to talk me out of it. And he didn't. Um, but it is because one of my four kiddos has faced a lifetime of healthcare challenges. I mean, he really has been fighting just to be healthy. 
And to do something that's so that affects so many people, millions of people will be left without healthcare coverage. And I get the ACA is not perfect. It's not even what I advocate for, but it's all we've got right now. And at least now it protects folks who have pre-existing conditions from discrimination by an insurance company if they're lucky enough to have insurance in the first place. So, so what does a person do when they decide to go from zero to 60 like that? What's, what are steps like one, two, and three? It's just, you know, after your husband failed to talk you out of it or didn't even try to talk you out of it, <laughs> how do you then do you Google how to run for Congress? Well, I did have to Google, you know, what are the, um, what are the filing requirements to run for Congress? So I did have, yes, I guess that was part of it. But I also realized that, you know, as connected as we are through our devices, our telephones, our laptops, we're really not connected in an interpersonal way. And so I got in my car I, and through, through using digital means, I started going to little democratic club meetings throughout this entire district. I was in a primary. I didn't, you know, consultants will tell you to stay in the most populated part of your district and only primary and campaign there. I didn't have a consultant and I didn't know that that was a strategy. So I actually started driving to all 13 counties. And um, visited them many times over before our primary. You know, in my primary, there it was a five-way primary. I didn't come in first in the primary, but um, the person who did come in first didn't cross over the 50% threshold. So I was put into a runoff. And I'll tell you, um, spending all of that time in the 13 counties really paid off in the end. It motivated people who had not seen a Democratic candidate in over 20 years. Um, to get out and vote and to, to fight for, for, you know, this campaign and grateful. I'm really grateful that I did that work. I, I miss it. I miss getting out, you know, mm -hmm. in the pandemic, I miss getting out and talking to people on their front porches and going places. And what did you see like on those front porches as, and as you were going to door to door and meeting with these, with these clubs, kind of what, what was the attitude in 2017 and 2018 among, among these Democrats who were in an, area of Texas that had been, you know, that was Republican and that was considered to be kind of hopelessly Republican for the foreseeable future? Well, I think initially, again, they were shocked and maybe perhaps even thought, well, isn't that cute <laughs> that she's running? <laughs> but eventually I showed up again and again and again. The northern part of my district, which is about three hours away from my home, I, in the, in the span of 13 months, drove there 40 <laughs> times. Um, and you know, you, you create are what feel like familial relationships. And when you have that level of trust and familiarity, people will advocate for you. People will step out of their comfort zones. I used to say that um, a good club meeting in one of the rural parts of town or a good, you know, uh, about the most you could get them to do was go to a, a what they call drinking liberally mm -hmm. dinner. You know, one Friday a night, they'd go to a restaurant and they'd all just, you know, hang out together, but they wouldn't talk to other people. But to get people to actually go block walk, you know, with me and to make phone calls and to actually organize, that was out truly outside of their comfort zone, but they started doing it. And, um, you know, things that were, you know, two years ago in the 2018 cycle where we might've been in, during get out the vote might have been maybe in four counties at one time, like this, this election cycle, we're in 10 counties, like every weekend it's grown. It's just, it's just grown. You know, that's all. It's <laughs> From the time that you kind of launched your campaign, your first campaign back in 2017. And now have you kind of been able to see the explosion in population before your eyes, or is, just, is it so gradual that, uh, you just kind of wake up one day and there's more developments or when you drive around your district, do you just constantly see homes coming soon, you know, new headquarters uh, coming soon? Well, there's, there's a tremendous amount of development in Austin. I mean, it's one of the fastest growing cities in the United States, but we also, yeah, there, but speaking of like demographic shifts and people moving here, that is definitely part of, of how this, how this district has evolved over the last, you know, nine years, um, almost 10 years. That is part of it. But part of it also is, I think, people realizing that, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, even if that desperate measure in your life is 
you don't vote, but you're suddenly going to go vote. <laughs> so I think that is part of it. And we we were really intentional. I'll, I'll share with you. In 2018, when I went out block walking in Colleen, Colleen is a very integrated, diverse community. We only have three precincts in Colleen. Less than, I think, 30,000 uh, registered voters in those three precincts, but they vote in high democratic proportions. I was out there in October block walking and knock on a door and people would be like, oh, I moved here five months ago, so I'm not registered here. I'm still registered in California and I'm going to mail in my ballot. In, in Texas, you have to be registered for an election 30 days in front of the election. So in 2020, what does that look like? If you moved here on October 6th from Oklahoma, you can't vote in Texas on November 3rd. Um, and I learned that too late last time. We weren't going to make the same mistake twice. So we have been doing voter registration at scale by mail. And what does that look like? That looks like taking the national change of address database. And when somebody moves into my district and taking the national voter file, if they have a high partisanship score, we send them a voter registration form. And the efforts of sending out voter registration forms in my district alone have have topped 30,000 voter registrations. In the last three years, have you come across uh, many people like yourself who weren't terribly engaged in politics before, but are now, now it's kind of their their life's work? Yes. Oh my goodness. I would say that for the majority of, of women I've met, that is absolutely, um, you know, we have all said, if there's any silver lining to a Trump presidency is one that we've all become politically um, active. And two, we've all become really, really good friends. So a large group of, of women um, across this district who are taking this very seriously. And, you know, I feel, I feel really grateful to, you know, run alongside someone like Mike Siegel for two terms. You know, I don't know what his political aspirations were before running in, in 20, you know, stepping into the ring 2017. Um, I suspect it was like me. It was just like, oh my gosh, you know, um, I've got to help do my little part to help, help right course our country. And, um, but once you run with people, you, it's almost like you become battle buddies or, you know, brothers and sisters in this and people I met in 2018 who ran, who didn't make it across the finish line. I still consider them some of my closest friends. There are people on the left who look at the kind of rising Democratic coalition and, and the, the swing of the suburbs towards Democrats with with some reticence because they worry, OK, well, this is it's good that this is going to help Democrats beat Donald Trump. But what if it hems in Democratic ambitions? You know, what if the, the people who have health care, you know, they have health insurance, try to stand in the way of universal health care or, uh, you know, people who have good incomes resist, uh, you know, taxing upper income people. So it's harder to reduce inequality or, and so on. Uh, what, what's your, uh, guess on that as, as a progressive who's, who's running in a district like this? Well, you know, the, the ideals that we are campaigning on are actually incredibly popular. That's why I'm so excited for some of the people who made it out of the democratic primaries who are going on to Congress because the general election is not really where their battle was. It was the democratic primary. We're increasing. We are increasing in number. That means our voice is is louder. When you think about the progressives who were elected in 2018, it was just a handful. But look at look at how people focused on them and and the things that we were talking about two years ago that seemed so radical don't seem so radical today. Living through a global pandemic, right? And, and to me, and let me know what you th- you think of this. It's almost a beyond electoral politics that that regardless of know how the individual elections wind up what you're talking about here is kind of is a, is a kind of awakening kind of almost a cultural awakening that'll that'll reshape this this country for for years to come yeah i agree with that wholeheartedly i think that's what a lot of us were doing we were sleeping i mean to, in full uh full disclosure i used to vote for people if i didn't know who they were <laughs> I mean, in a primary, I'd go by name, like typically gender and name. And that's a horrible way to pick your candidates. Um, now that I'm, that I've run for two cycle, I actually know everybody on the ballot, which is a much better place to be. And um, and I know a lot of people who know everybody on the ballot. There's still a, a significant number of the population who who doesn't know. 
everybody on the ballot. So they, there still is awakening to, to occur. But I do think that we are, we are beginning to, you know, push awake that slumbering giant. And hopefully, you know, at least for my lifetime, and hopefully my kids' lifetime, we don't ever fall asleep again. We will be bound to repeat this mistake again if we fall asleep again. But Julie Oliver, thank you so much for joining us here. All right. Y'all have a good one. That was Julie Oliver, Annie Weaver, and Candace Valenzuela. And that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. If you've subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.